Let me just eliminate all of the white noise for They're you. They're counting on you not understanding what this is all about. They want to create conflict. They want to create this chaos. They want you to be stupid. This is the Conservative Daily Podcast with Joe Waldman. Yeah, I'm a threat because I'm telling you what the Constitution says. And Max McGuire. The flak is the heaviest when the bomber is right above the target about to open the bomb bay doors. And now the Conservative Daily Podcast is on the air. Welcome back to another edition of the Conservative Daily Podcast. My name is Max McGuire. Almost here. Christmas is almost here. Let me know in the comment section what you're doing for Christmas. If you're going anywhere, if you're spending time with loved ones. I mean, that's what we should all be doing, right? Spending time with friends, family, and uh, remembering the reason for the season. Well, today, we're going to spice it up a bit. Not a whole lot in the news. News tends to be pretty dead right around now. So I want to follow up on a history podcast that we did a while ago. Now, we launched a new history podcast channel called Real American History. That had to get put on the back burner because we have lots of things that we're trying to work through on Conservative Daily, and we don't want to spread ourselves too thin. But this is an excellent opportunity to follow up on that history podcast because there's lots to talk about in history, and there's lots of heroes that aren't necessarily remembered as heroes. We're going to get into that a little bit today. Now, if you haven't already listened to that podcast, it's not incredibly important for this one, but I do recommend that you go listen to it either on Conservative Daily Podcast or on the Real American History Podcast. Um, Talking about Samuel Whittemore, the 80-year-old man who fought off the British army that was retreating from Lexington and Concord. Really, it's a great story that everyone should know, but it's also important because that story inspired a lot of people. Stories like that inspired a lot of people to take up arms against the British army. It wasn't an easy endeavor going up against the most powerful army in the world at the time, the British army in the 1700s. And the American colonists, many of them did. Now, not everyone did. There were lots of loyalists who remained loyal to the British crown throughout. But most were not loyal. Most took up arms, but it it didn't all happen at once, right? It took a little bit of persuading for many people. And Lexington and Concord, specifically the militia's ability to turn it around by going after the British retreating while they were retreating, played a huge role in that. So today I want to talk about immediately after Lexington and Concord, what happened in this country. I'm going to be focusing on two people in in particular. The first one's up on the screen. He is Henry Knox. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it should. He is the namesake behind Fort Knox. So he is an American hero, as I'll show you. And also another one, this is going to surprise a lot of people, but until he turned against the American, until he decided to go up and and, uh, work with the British, Benedict Arnold was a hero in a number of battles. But early on, it was Ticonderoga. So I want to talk about the immediate aftermath, specifically the importance of cannons. Now, if you remember, the British were going to Lexington and Concord to try and find cannons. The Americans had plenty of muskets, not as many rifles, but they had plenty of small arms. What they didn't have a ton of were cannons, heavy munitions, didn't have a lot of gunpowder either. So the British were hoping that they could get rid of all of the colonist cannons so they wouldn't have to go up against artillery in the field. So there was a huge push after Lexington and Concord. They didn't get any of the cannons in Lexington and Concord, but there was a huge push 
on the colonial side to get cannons. And Benedict Arnold had an idea. Now, just to take a step back, in, in March of 1775, Benedict Arnold was elected the captain of the New Haven Militia. Prior to the creation of the Continental Army, the militias were fragmented and they were largely created by the states. So after Lexington Concord, Arnold realized that war was here, it was unavoidable, and it gave him an opportunity to advance. He marched his troops to Boston to help fight the British, and when he arrived, he had a plan. He had a plan that he wanted to explain to the British Committee of Safety. Now, from the previous episode on Samuel Whittemore, you'll remember that he was on what was called the Committee of Correspondence. Prior to the creation of the United States, the, the colonies, while still under British rule technically, had these different committees to basically run things. They had things like committees of correspondence, inspection, ob observation, and safety. Now, committees on safety, they dealt with things like law and order, but also militia strategy before the Continental Congress was officially established. So Benedict Arnold went to Massachusetts to meet with the Committee of Safety because he wanted them to sanction and pay for a raid on Fort Ticonderoga. This is Fort Ticonderoga on the screen. Fort Ticonderoga was built um, during the French and Indian War. Right? This, was, this was known as the Gibraltar of America, the gateway to the continent. It was built by the French originally in 1755 after the Battle of Lake George. This was a naval battle on a lake. And they said, well, we can't have this. We can't have naval battles on lakes. So the British and Iroquois were able to defeat the French. So the French built Fort Ticonderoga to control access to Lake Champlain. And in doing so, hopefully they would slow the, the British advance towards Canada if they decide to invade. Again, as I said, it was called the gateway to the continent, the Gibraltar of America. When the British ultimately won the French and Indian War, the British gained control of the fort. But if you know your history, if you know your geography, after the French and Indian War, the British also controlled Canada. So they didn't have a real need for Fort Ticonderoga. What would Fort Ticonderoga do in that situation? It's going to stop the British from invading British territory. So the British said, hey, this is it's a nice fort. We'll use it to store some stuff. But they didn't see it as having real strategic importance. So as I said, it was used primarily for storage and was very lightly defended. Benedict Arnold knew this. He knew that Fort Ticonderoga had 59 heavy cannons, in addition to a stockpile of arms, musket balls, gunpowder, and, they, and it could only garrison 48 troops. So he, he saw Fort Ticonderoga as an opportunity for the, for the fledgling United States, not even before they were even in the United States, for the colonists to get their hands on cannons and hopefully turn the tide in the war. But there was a problem. You see, Benedict Arnold was really bad at keeping secrets. Ultimately, why he was eventually caught colluding with the British, he was so excited about his plan to attack Fort Ticonderoga, they basically told whoever was willing to listen. Being a man of Connecticut, he told a lot of people his scheme in Connecticut as well. And one of them was a man who went by the name, oh, those are the cannons, by the way. One of the people he told was a man who went by the name Ethan Allen, not to, not to be confused with the furniture company. Ethan Allen um, wasn't pr exactly a looker, but he heard about this scheme and he said, yeah, I want to do that. So before Benedict Arnold could actually get to Massachusetts to get funding from the Massachusetts Committee on Safety, Ethan Allen went before the Connecticut Committee of Safety and got them to greenlight a raid on Fort Ticonderoga 
with his militia, known as the Green Mountain Boys. That's what they called themselves. So Benedict Arnold heard about this, so he was a race against time. Here you have Ethan Allen getting money funding from Connecticut to go raid Fort Ticonderoga, and he was begging, begging Massachusetts to give him money as well. Massachusetts greenlit the operation as well, and Benedict Arnold was able to race ahead and catch up with Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain Boys before they could attack the fort. After a lengthy argument, a lengthy argument between the Green Mountain Boys and Benedict Arnold and his militia, ultimately Allen and Arnold, Arnold agreed to work together. Now it's interesting because since Benedict Arnold is known as, like, as synonymous with, with treason, being a traitor, his role in this story has been largely written out. Right? If you read history books, yeah, they might mention it, but the history books tend to remember this raid as Ethan Allen's brainchild when it wasn't. It was Benedict Arnold's idea. So this is how it went down. The Americans snuck up on the fort, and they found that there was only one guard on duty, awake. Now, this guard tried to shoot at the advancing American militiamen, but his musket misfired. It didn't go off. So obviously, the colonists were able to overwhelm that single guard. And since his shot never went off, the other 47 soldiers never woke up. So Ethan Allen, Benedict Arnold, and their combined forces were able to get inside of Fort Ticonderoga and overpower the British there without needing to fire a single shot. And this picture on the screen is the, um, is the commanding officer, William Delaplace. He was woken up out of sound sleep. That What you can see there is him literally surrendering with a bedsheet around his waist. <laughs> it is written that he surrendered the fort with, quote, his breeches in his hand. He didn't even have a chance to put on pants. That's how fast this raid was. Now, eventually, Ethan Allen was able to bring 400 extra soldiers of his to man the fort. And that's when things started getting completely out of control. They were wild. I mean, think about what the Green Mountain Boys would be all about. Yeah, they were drinking. They were eating all the food. They were trying to plunder the storage, the equipment and storage for themselves. Because remember, at this point, there really isn't cohesion in this fight against the British. It's every state for themselves. So they want to bring all their stuff back to Connecticut. Since they outnumbered Benedict Arnold's forces, they simply got away with doing whatever they wanted. Now, while the Green Mountain Boys were more interested with the food and the liquor, Arnold was able to ca uh, catalog all the weapons that were found, what they had seized, and he wrote to Boston that he would need help transporting all, transporting it all. Specifically, he needed help transporting those 59 cannons and the tonnage of weapons, ammunition, gunpowder, and supplies. Now, that's easier said than done. But there was also the issue of needing to defend the fort. If they removed all the cannons, then there would be none left to fight when the British ships or, or troops tried to retake the fort. Now, Arnold never got his reply from Massachusetts because there were other things going on. At least not yet. But the, and mainly because the embers that had been kind of like burning in Massachusetts after Lexington and Concord ultimately just erupted into flames. Now, Lexington and Concord, as I said, was an American victory primarily because of the casualties that colonists were able to inflict on the British as they retreated from those two towns. 
It was the skirmishes. It wasn't the battles themselves, but it was the later skir- skirmishes. The American colonists realized that they could force the British to retreat if they could wage an, a- wage an asymmetric guerrilla war and force the British to take more losses than they were willing to accept. But in order to win, they had to force the British into the field. And as long as the British could be resupplied by sea, there was no reason for General Gage's 6,000 troops that were holed up in Boston ever to leave the city to engage the militia. So after Lexington and Concord, what you had was a complete uh, blockade. The colonists were trying to stop the British from leaving Boston by land. So the British were stuck. If they, if they left Boston by land, they would have been confronted by the militia and they would have been forced into the field. And ultimately, they probably would have all lost because there were many more militia than the 6,000 troops that the British had. There were 15,000 militia troops at one time gathered outside of Boston to lay siege to the city. But without a navy, they had no hope of defeating the British, right? Because as long as the British have the British Navy, Navy they can be resupplied right here, you can see, through the harbor. So the colonists didn't have a navy, as I said, at least not one that could go up against the British first-rate ships. Now, a first-rate ship in the British Navy would have over 100 cannons on board. The colonists had nothing that could go up against that. The only way they could get the British to evacuate Boston, they knew this, would be to make living in Boston too dangerous, would be to take the ships out of the equation And the only way they could do that would be by securing land where you could reach the city with long-range cannons. They didn't have the cannons yet. They knew they sat at Fort Ticonderoga. They had a couple, right? But they didn't have enough to lay siege to Boston. But they needed the land. So after Arnold and Allen seized Fort Ticonderoga, all of a sudden this became a possibility, right? The cannons were right there. Yeah, it's hard to get them. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the cannons were right there. They could practically taste them. All of a sudden, it became a real possibility. Obviously, they said, we'll, we'll deal with the logistics of moving 59 cannons later. We need to get this territory. Otherwise, it won't mean anything. So the colonists knew they had to do something. Now, remember, they're a militia. They weren't being paid yet. The Continental Army hadn't even been officially created. Like any volunteer militia, eventually, those 15,000 soldiers would have to go home to tend to their fields, to tend to their businesses. They would have to leave. And at that point, the British would be able to enter and leave Boston at will. The heat of the summer also didn't help their morale either. It was very, very hot. So it was decided that before the, the militia would all leave and, and give up and grow tired of it, they had to seize Bunker Hill. And they had to make a fort atop Bunker Hill so that when the cannons finally arrived, they would have the territory necessary to lay siege to Boston but also to force the ships out of the harbor. Otherwise, they would have been sunk with the cannons. So they debated where atop this hill near Charleston, they wanted to set up their fort. There was a debate. Now, this battle that we're about to talk about is known as the Battle of Bunker Hill. But technically, the fort that they built was not on Bunker Hill. It was built on a nearby hill known as Breed's Hill. Now, they debated, would they do Bunker Hill over here? or Breed's Hill a little bit closer to Boston. Ultimately, Breed's Hill won because it was closer to Boston and they believed they could more easily fortify it. So they built what's called a redoubt. Basically just a, a, a trenches, right? Dirt fortifications. They didn't have time really to build a whole lot. 
But on the night of June 16, 1775, Colonel William Prescott led 1,200 of his men to Breed's Hill and began fortifying it. Now, some of the British sentries had noticed that the colonists were digging their trenches. They didn't think anything of it. Said, oh, look at them. They're digging. Let them go. They can't hurt us. But by the time the sun had risen, they saw that the American colonists had successfully built a fort right under their noses. And sure enough, there were a couple of cannons there. They didn't have a ton, but they did have a few cannons, enough to make the British treat them seriously. There were six artillery pieces that they had placed atop this fort. Now, the HMS Lively, the HMS Lively was one of the British ships in the harbor. And at first light, they noticed the cannons, they noticed the fort, and began shelling the hit hilltop. Now, this absolutely enraged the admiral, who went by, who is uh, Samuel Graves. It enraged him because he was asleep on another ship in the harbor. And if you know anything about the British, they don't like being <laughs> inconvenienced. He would say, well, what's going on? Who's shooting? Stop shooting. So he ordered them to cease fire because he was pissed that it had awoken him out of a sound sleep. And he had never ordered the bombardment. Now, while Graves had ordered the attack to stop, that order while briefly obeyed, was eventually countermanded by Gage. He said, no, you just woke up. You don't know what you're talking about. Keep firing on the hilltop. All 128 guns in the harbor began to fire on Breed's Hill. But the British had ultimately waited too long. They waited too long because the Americans were dug in, they'd built their trenches, and none of the shots were landing. That's the whole point of, of building that fort. So... When the sun rose even higher, Colonel Prescott, the, colon the colonial colonel on the hill, he realized that the fortifications that they had made could be very easily flanked. So he ordered his men to start digging breastwork to cover their flanks. Now, breastwork, it, it, it's really simple. You basically you dig a hole until, and you pile up a mound of dirt on one side until it's about chest high breastwork to cover their flanks. Now, noticing that their heavy bombardments had accomplished absolutely nothing, the British realized that a land assault would be necessary. General Gage ended up tracking down Colonel Prescott's cousin in Boston, trying to get a feel for what fighting would, uh, would greet them when the British landed on the shores outside of Charlestown. And the cousin replied that he didn't know whether the men would fight, but he knew that Colonel Prescott would fight the British to the gates of hell which has now become a very famous saying. I'm sure it's been used other, in other places, but in American history, this is one of the most famous places that that phrase would, would have been uttered. So the British first landed. When they first landed, General Howe, who was leading that charge, he mistook colonial militia as reinforcements. So he's looking up at the hill, and all of a sudden he sees people that he didn't know were there. So he, he stopped what he's doing. He said, whoa, 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 there's more than we thought there were. We can't just advance on this, on this hilltop. We need to wait for reinforcements ourselves. They weren't actually colonial reinforcements. They were just other colonists that they didn't know about. So Howe delayed his assault, asked for reinforcements. And while that ultimately gave the British more troops, it also gave away their element of surprise. So the colonists were ready when the British began climbing the hill. But as the British soldiers began waiting for their replacements, if you look at this, Look at this map. The first landing was right here, Morton's Point. As they're waiting for reinforcements, they hear shots starting to ring out from nearby Charlestown. 
there were snipers, colonial snipers that had been put into bell towers and on roofs, and they were shooting at the British. The colonial snipers were ready to pick them off the minute that they made the run from Morton's Point up the hill to Breed's Hill. So, had to delay their assault even more. The British took a step back, and they ordered the Navy to begin shelling the town. This is probably the first instance of war crimes in, I mean, what we now know to be war crimes. They weren't war crimes then. This is probably the first incident of war crimes in the American Revolution. The British Navy began firing using munitions called carcasses. These are cannonballs, but they are hollowed out. And inside, they put gunpowder, different incendiary materials, and there are fuses on them. So the purpose of a carcass is you fire it at a building, right? It punches through the building and explodes and rains fire down around them. It's basically an incendiary cannonball. So for 11 minutes, these hollowed out cannonballs could actually burn for 11 minutes. So the British Navy began shelling Charlestown with these kinds of cannonballs, destroying houses, burning civilian houses, and making so much smoke that any snipers that were left could not possibly see the British and couldn't possibly shoot. The first volley of carcass rounds stopped the snipers, and then the British followed up on foot by setting fire to the town. This is what I mean. It was, it was a war crime. They literally burned this town to the ground. So then they decided that they were going to advance on the hill. But in order for the British to advance on Breed's Hill, they had to walk through grass that was as high as their waist across uneven terrain. This combined with the fences that crisscrossed the landscape made it really difficult for the British to stay in their fighting formations. If you know how the British fought wars, they fought the wars with numbers, right? They put all of their forces in a line and they would, they would kill the enemy by shooting volley after volley. And if one soldier fell, another soldier would come in from, a, from the ranks behind and take their place. Very similar to the phalanx that you'd see from, from what's that, Roman soldiers. The idea of all being in a line and fighting as one cohesive unit. But as the British are advancing up Reed's Hill, they can't do that because these aren't flat. This isn't flat terrain. Typically, in olden times, you'd have one side and another side say, hey, we want to have a battle. They'd pick out the actual spot for the battle. Both sides would say, yes, this is agreeable. And then they would march against each other, shoot each other. And whichever side was still standing at the end, they won. Well, here, this is what I mean by when I said earlier, asymmetric warfare. The American colonists picked the battlefield. They picked a battlefield that they knew the British would not be able to have their sheer strength of numbers, and they forced the British to fight on their terms. So the British are advancing. They're having to jump over fences. They're, they're stepping in cow pies. They're trudging through grass, unable to stay in marching formation. Now, as they march closer and closer to the hill, many of the defending colonists want to open fire. Say, hey, we can see them. Let's just shoot them. But Colonel Prescott knew that they were low on gunpowder, knew that they were low on ammunition, and they wouldn't be able to hold this hill forever. So he gave the order that is now infamous. He told the militia, do not fire until you can see the whites of their eyes. That's where that quote came from. So the colonists waited. They waited until the British soldiers were about 50 paces away. 
That is when the colonists, able to rest their rifles on these mounds of dirt, open fire, open fire and cut the British down. It was a complete bloodbath. The first volley killed dozens of soldiers and at least one officer, forcing the British to retreat. I want to just illustrate how significant this first volley was, because typically, as I said, the British army lines up and they expect to shoot volley after volley after volley after volley back and forth. Here, one volley cut down dozens of soldiers and one officer and left them in complete disarray. They had no idea what to do, so they retreated. Ultimately, the British regrouped and decided that they were going to launch another assault on the hill. This time, however, in addition to having to go through the, the tall grass, uneven terrain, the cow pies, the fences, they also had to march over the bodies of dead and wounded British soldiers. Obviously, that makes the, the trek harder, but it's also a huge bit of psychological warfare. Imagine having to march over the bodies of wounded soldiers begging you to help them. So again, the colonists waited into the, into the British got just close enough where they could see the whites of their eyes and they fired another volley, again, cutting down the British regulars. One observer wrote that as soon as the British presented themselves on this second assault, as many as nine-tenths of them were killed or wounded. Think about that. 90% of the British soldiers on that second assault were either killed or wounded by the American colonists holding the hill. So again, the British retreated. The British retreated. That's uh, Colonel Prescott. So the British retreated. And it's okay, this isn't going to work. This time, General Howe was furious. He took over command. He had the, the soldiers strip down all of their packs. Said, hey, this, there's a hill a couple hundred yards away. You don't need your tent. <laughs> you don't need your rations. You don't need any of that. Dump your pack. You're marching up the hill. That way it's easier to march. So he had them dump all their unnecessary gear. He also had them get rid of their, <laughs> their heavy clothing because it was so hot trudging up a hill. So, hey, you know what? Ditch the heavy clothing. We're going to go without it. Then he also had them line up in columns. So instead of end-to-end, a long line that could easily be picked off, he had them march up the hill in thinner columns. The reason this was important was because it would present less of a target, less of a target to the, for the colonists to shoot at. So even if the colonists all aimed at the first soldiers in the front of the column, yeah, they might kill them, but they would only kill three or four with a single volley as opposed to killing 90% of the force with a single volley as we just saw in that second assault. He also made the assumption that by this point, the colonists would be running low on ammunition. He was right. So he had the British mount bayonets. Mount bayonets so that by the time they reached, they could actually go to hand-to-hand combat. Now, when, as I said, they marched in columns, and by the time the British had reached the redoubt, the colonists were out of ammo. The plan worked. By forcing the colonists to to aim at just a smaller number of soldiers in that column, they wasted all their ammunition and had nothing left by the time the British reached the top of the hill. Now, some of the colonists retreated smartly. Some, very strangely, ran towards the British and were immediately cut down. But Colonel Prescott was one of the last to abandon the fort. He parried the bayonet thrusts with his ceremonial sword. And he was able to fend them off a little before he was forced to retreat as well. Now, the Americans lost most of their troops during the retreat. 
The Americans were also forced to leave behind the six or so artillery pieces that they had dragged atop that hill. But when the dust settled, even though the British had captured the territory, it came at an absolutely staggering cost. 19 British officers had been killed. 62 British officers had been wounded. 207 British soldiers had been killed. 766 British soldiers had been wounded. Think about that. 81 officers killed or wounded. Eight, uh, 973 soldiers killed or wounded. By comparison, only 115 Americans were killed and 305 were wounded. There were also 30 POWs, and of those, 20 of them died. The Americans didn't come out unscathed. But for the second time in as many months, they had proven that they can take on the most powerful military in the world as long as they fight on their terms, an asymmetric guerrilla war against an army that isn't prepared for those terms. Breed's Hill proved that the American colonist Achilles Hill wasn't a will to fight, but rather supplies. If they had had if they had sufficient ammunition and gunpowder, they could have held that hill indefinitely. Right? If they had cannons, they could have held that hill indefinitely. So no, they, they had no lack of a will to fight. They just lacked the supplies. And the militia knew precisely where they could get those cannons for Ticonderoga. By this time, however, the Continental Congress had been established and they were creating the Continental Army. George Washington had been named the general in charge of the army. And, and by this time, he arrives outside Boston to take command of the, of the overall siege as the new head of this Continental Army. He too realized desperately that his forces needed cannons. He remembered being briefed previously by Benedict Arnold on his plans to bring the cannons to Boston. Now, by this time, Benedict Arnold had grown tired of watching the Green Mountain Boys drinking all the rum, right? And he left Fort Ticonderoga, abandoned it. Now, Washington knew that the task of bringing these cannons would be monumentally difficult. These are the cannons I'm talking about. He knew it would be monumentally difficult because there weren't even roads, right? From that point in northern New York to Boston, there weren't even technically roads. There were like trails, game trails. The cannons would have to be dragged through forests and even swamps and brought over 300 miles from Ticonderoga to Boston. So Washington tasked Henry Knox with getting these cannons from Ticonderoga to Boston. He gave him 1,000 pounds, which was a lot of money back then, and said, make it happen. So obviously, it, it took a few months by this time, it was fall, and we were about to get into winter, and Knox knew he didn't have a second to waste. His plan was to use the changing seasons to his advantage. He was going to load the boats, uh, the, the cannons onto boats and bring them as far south down Lake Champlain as he could before the lakes and rivers froze. Then, once the lakes and rivers froze, he would take advantage of the fact that there would hopefully be snow on the ground. That would freeze the swamps and make it easier to transport the cannons by land using sleds. This would require a lot of luck. The weather had to be warm enough for long enough to keep the lake from freezing so they could get them south. And it had to become cold enough to make the overland journey possible. Knox told Washington he expected that this would take two weeks. It didn't. It took ten. <laughs> but he did luck out with the weather. When he arrived at Fort Ticonderoga, Knox was able to inventory everything that had been left behind and not drank or 
or drank by the Green Mountain Boys. And he decided to take all 59 of the cannons. He said, listen, this is an important fort. If the British want to take it, they can have it. We need the cannons elsewhere. So he loaded 60 tons. That's 119,000 pounds of cannons, artillery, and other material onto boats. And he sailed them as far south as he could. Here is the actual route that they had to take. You can see, you see all the, you see the topography. This was terrible, terrible terrain. This is a little bit easier. So you see here Lake Champlain. He had to go down here, Lake George. Sorry, I said Lake Champlain, I meant Lake George. Apologies. He had to take it from Fort Ticonderoga all the way down Lake George until he reached Fort George. Then he would take it by land all the way over here. He'd have to cross the Hudson River, had to get lucky and cross the Hudson River, and then bring it from the west through Massachusetts to Boston. That is not easy to do in any way, shape, or form. So it, was a, it ended up being a mess. I mean, the largest cannons were 24-pounders, which weighed 5,000 pounds each and were 11 feet long. <laughs> These are not easy things to transport at this time. So after getting everything together, he was able to leave Fort Ticonderoga on December 8th. And as I said, it was a mess. It was hard enough getting the, boats, the, the stuff onto boats, but many of the boats actually sank. Luckily, they didn't sink in the deepest parts of the lake and they could be raised and, and the cannons could be saved. But there were a couple boats that, that sank. 11 days after setting out, December 17th, Knox wrote Washington and told him that he hoped he would, it would be smooth sailing from here on out and that he'd be able to have his, quote, noble train of artillery to present Washington with these cannons in, he said, 16 to 17 days. That didn't happen. <laughs> Not even close. Not only was there not enough snow on the ground once they got to the southernmost point of the lake, but the ice was too thin to drag the cannons across the Hudson River. Knox hadn't planned to use boats on the Hudson. He had just planned to drag them across once the river had sufficiently froze. He, said, he told Washington it would be 16, 17 days on December 17th. It was not until January 9th that there was enough snow on the ground and that the Hudson River was sufficiently frozen where he could drag the cannons across. Now, the historical record gets a little sketchy here because Henry Knox stopped writing in his diary around this point. But we know he had a lot of trouble with his oxen, with his sleds, and with his crew almost the entire way. We know that by January 25th, he reached Framingham, Massachusetts because John Adams wrote in his diary that he saw the noble train of cannons. One of the problems that Knox faced was the people he hired were New York crews. And once he hit that Massachusetts line, he had to hire a new crew. The New York crew didn't want to go into Massachusetts. So two days later, obviously John Adams saw him in Framingham on the 25th. Two days later, on January 27th, Knox was able to deliver the cannons to George Washington himself. He was eight days late, eight, eight weeks late, sorry. But remarkably, he came in under budget. He only used 521 pounds of his 1,000 pound budget. So, and, and here are some pictures of some paintings depicting the sleds and having to, they literally pulled them by oxen on sleds through the snow. This is actually a very accurate depiction. <laughs> a, little, a little scribble. So, Washington got his cannons at the end of January and he had to figure out where to put them. At this point, I mean, obviously, Bunker Hill, Breed's Hill, that was a choice. But at this point, the British had fortified it. The British held it. 
and he knew the British would see that coming. So after a, a winter of planning, George Washington decided that he would put the cannons on Dorchester Heights down here. Actually, I think the next picture is easy. Here you go. So Bunker Hill, Reed's Hill, up here north of Boston and Charlestown. Washington decided he was going to drag the cannons all the way up to Dorchester Heights because it would also give him the ability to point his cannons down at the harbor and force the British to evacuate. In the evening of March 4th, 1776, Washington's colonial forces moved the cannons up to Dorchester Heights in the dead of night. Now, Washington expected that the British would try and take the hill. He didn't defend it. Instead, he put all of his, his troops, all of his troops in Cambridge, and said that if the British attacked uh, Dorchester Heights, he would invade Boston with his troops. So when the British woke up on the morning of March 5th, they saw all 59 of Ticonderoga's cannons pointing down at Boston and the harbor, and they were completely shocked. They had no idea. They had no idea this was coming. General Howe recounted that the colonists had accomplished in a single night what his army would have taken a month to do. That's what he wrote in his diary. The British assault on Dorchester, they planned one. This is where Washington got very lucky. The British planned to attack Dorchester. They had to call it off because a snowstorm rolled in and they, there was no, nothing they could do. So unable to take Dorchester Heights, facing these 59 cannons, General Howe had no choice but to retreat from Boston and to abandon the city. He threatened to burn the city to the ground if Washington didn't let him and his men out. Washington was fine with that. He wanted the city, he wanted the British out. So finally, finally, here's the cannons looking down from Dorchester Heights. Finally, the British retreated on March 17th. They evacuated Boston and set sail for Canada. They also took approximately 1,000 of the loyalist colonists with them. Probably a very good idea. And this was probably, I mean, the, the biggest early victory in the American Revolution, freeing Boston. I mean, Boston was the heart of the British campaign in the Americas. Everything had started in Boston. Boston Massacre, Boston Tea Party. This has been the heart of the revolution, also the center point of the British attempt to kill that revolution. And George Washington was able to take it back. But he was only able to accomplish that because of men like Henry Knox and Benedict Arnold. So I tell you this story. I thought about telling the story of, of the American troops crossing um, the Delaware River on Christmas night. Uh, I want to tell this one instead because this is a follow-up to that other episode. And it shows that even facing insurmountable odds, even licking your wounds after a technical defeat, nothing's impossible. I mean, I, I can't stress enough how hard it was for them to trek those 59 cannons over 300 miles through ice and snow across a swamp. But they did it. They did it because they believed in what they were fighting for. And it also it shows, I said this earlier, but it shows that the American colonists did not lack a will to fight. Their problem was supplies and money, as, you, as we'll later find out, not being able to pay soldiers. The British also realized this. I mean, when you see how 
General Howe saying that the, Brit- the American colonists accomplished in a night what it would have taken the British a month. He wasn't kidding. So he sees what the Americans are capable of when they have the resources. It terrified the hell out of them. And after this, the British started fighting a lot harder. During this whole siege, they were laughing about the American colonists. So, oh yeah, the American colonists are out there. They're so stupid. We can resupply by sea. They're doing nothing but wasting their time. After Dorchester Heights, after Breed's Hill, after Ticonderoga, the British realized that this was a force to be reckoned with. It also was their first glimpse at what a united colonies could do. Because realize Ticonderoga was taken by people from Connecticut being paid by Massachusetts to assault a fort in New York and then being dragged by a general who was being employed by the Continental Congress down in Philadelphia to drag those cannons from Fort Ticonderoga all the way to Boston. They hadn't seen anything like this. They had not seen what would happen if the colonies started fighting together, if they could get their act together and stop fighting amongst themselves. So it's an important lesson because we started this story with Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold fighting over who would get the credit, and we end it with the British being forced to retreat from Boston under threat of bombardment from 59 British heavy cannons. It shows, yes, what you can do if you put your mind to it, but it also shows that even true today, we can accomplish far more together than we ever could apart. So I want to tell the story because I, I, I love it. And, I, and obviously, Benedict Arnold did things later in the war. He absolutely deserves to be branded as a traitor. But it's important to remember that people are complicated. And, and people, people's entire role in history should never be defined by one decision that they made. The, the British never would have been forced to retreat from Boston had it not been for this man, Benedict Arnold, coming up with the idea. So think about that as you go into Christmas. Yes, our history is, is littered with very complicated figures. No one's perfect. Benedict Arnold was far from perfect. But remember, yeah, people make a lot of mistakes. But had it not been for many of these people, we wouldn't be where we are today. That's going to be it for this edition of the Conservative Daily Podcast. If you like the podcast, you got to check out all of our sponsors, especially MyPillow. When you go to MyPillow.com, use promo code CD21, Charlie Delta 21, you're going to get up to 66% off your order. It's the best discount code available. If you like this story that I just told you about American history, you got to check out Liberty Cigars. Liberty Cigars sells you premium imported tobacco cigars, but they're all They're all designed and themed after historical figures. So they have cigar lines named after presidents, named after generals, people who helped the American colonists during the American Revolution. So if you have someone in your life who loves history, loves stories like this, but also enjoys a good cigar smoke, a good cigar every now and then, check out libertycigars.com. And yes, again, use promo code CD21, Charlie Delta 21, and they're going to give you a free cigar on top of all orders over $76. Also, check out the Conservative Daily Store. Too late to get anything in time for Christmas, but if you if you have gifts you need to give after Christmas and you have conservatives in your like, life who would love some of that apparel, definitely check it out. It's all up there and available for purchase today. That's going to be it for this edition of the Conservative Daily Podcast. My name is Max McGuire. A Merry Christmas to everyone. Joe might go live tomorrow, but I, I won't be going live. A Merry Christmas to everyone. I hope everyone has a 
relaxing and restful weekend spent with friends and family. That's going to be it for this edition of the podcast. Remember, though, just like this story told you, we can win. But the only way we can win is if we all stand up and fight together.